Link back on the programme for more stories. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. You've been listening to Hong Kong Heritage with Anna-Marie on your station, RTHK Radio 3. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. The selection of the chief executive by universal suffrage in 2017 will be a milestone in Hong Kong's constitutional development. According to Article 45 of the Basic Law, a broadly representative nominating committee will nominate candidates. Then all voters will elect the chief executive through one person, one vote. Finally, there is appointment by the Central People's Government. Following these steps, we can all elect our chief executive in 2017. It's just gone 6.30. Time now for more reflections from Asia with Harvey Stockwin. The post-presidential election crisis in Indonesia has not intensified, but it has not completely gone away either. There were no mutual expressions of democratic goodwill on July the 22nd as the Indonesian Election Commission, the KPU, released the news that the outgoing governor of Jakarta, Joko Widodo, and his running mate, Yusuf Kala, had won the 2014 presidential election. Outgoing President Susilu Bambang Yudhoyono was obviously anxious lest lingering political tension might continue to increase. It arose after the nationwide voting on July the 9th as a result of both candidates asserting their victory at the polls. In a speech on July the 21st, Yuriono urged a return to the democratic norm. Quote, Accepting defeat is noble. Congratulating the victor is beautiful. Unquote, the president said. But defeated candidate, former Army General Prabowo Subianto, was not listening. So far, he has continued to attack the result and the KPU, alleging its failure to recognize massive fraud and deceit. Early on July the 22nd, he caused a great deal of confusion by announcing that he had withdrawn his supporters from the counting process, though this was widely reported as Prabowo also withdrawing as a candidate, something which in Indonesian electoral law he cannot do and for which he would pay a substantial fine. During the election campaign, Prabowo had occasionally disdained Indonesia's increasing nationwide reliance on direct democratic elections, and even hinted at a return to indirect elections. Implicitly, he has continued to do so. His image, if not his words, implied a return to the authoritarianism of the Suharto era, as Prabowo sought to turn the nostalgia that some Indonesians feel for it to his electoral advantage. The widespread assumption is that Prabowo will now seek to question the fairness of this election before the Indonesian Constitutional Court, which is what he is allowed to do. But he has to prove that the election process was unfair and that the widespread cheating took place sufficient to vitiate the election result. He has little time to prepare his case. The court must deliver its final verdict on the election by August the 22nd. 
It has the power to order repeat voting in some areas if major irregularities are proved in areas under question. The obvious bluster behind Proboa's posture suggests that he finds it easier to assert rather than to prove electoral malpractice. The election results announced by the Election Commission on July the 22nd make it unlikely that Proboa would get anywhere should he opt for an appeal. First and last, Widodo's election victory, while far from duplicating Yuriono's landslide 60%-plus victories in the first two presidential elections, was more decisive than some of the claims made by the exit pollsters in the immediate electoral aftermath. These estimates hovered around a 52% to 48% victory for Widodo, with the Proboo supporters forecasting roughly the same margin in their candidates' favour. But the widodo Color team ended up with a fraction under 71 million votes, or 53.15%, while the proboo Hatta ticket gained 62.6 million votes, or 46.85% of the total vote. Altogether, the world's third largest democracy saw nearly 134 million voters casting valid ballots, a turnout of 69.6%, slightly under expectations. The Election Commission judged that another 1.4 million votes were spoilt or invalid. But Proboa's team would have had to prove that another 8.4 million votes were invalid if Widodo's 6.3% majority was to be eliminated. The breakdown of the vote by provinces reinforces the view that Widodo won a convincing political victory. The KPU reports the vote in 33 provinces and cities. Widodo Kala was victorious in 23 of the 33. Widodo first rose to political prominence as the mayor of the central Java town of Solo, otherwise known as Surakata. He gained 66.6% of the vote in central Java and 53% of the vote in East Java, but Provoa won 60% in West Java. Curiously, in Jakarta, where Widodo has been governor for the last two years, the vote broke down in exactly the same percentages as those achieved nationally, 53 to 47%. Provoa won 70% of the vote or more in two provinces, West Sumatra and West Nusa Tenggara, while Widodo won more than 70% in four, Bali, West Sulawesi, South Sulawesi and Papua. The KPU also tallied a 34th province. The 678,000 overseas Indonesians who preferred Widodo by 54 to 46%. All told then, this election was a considerable victory which leaves one with an overarching thought. What would have been the result if the Widodo Kala campaign had been better organised and less haphazard? Direct nationwide elections for the Indonesian presidency are, after all, in their infancy. This was only the third. Given the numerous reports of the poorly organised Widodo Kala campaign, it is surprising that they did as well as they did. They owe a lot to the national and, to some extent, the international press and media. It spread the world that Jokowi, 
that's Widodo's commonly called name, that Jacoby was a new type of politician, much better attuned to a decentralised and democratic Indonesia. Prabowo's campaign had a much better sense of showmanship. Witness him trotting around the Sukarno Stadium on a white horse early in the campaign. But it wasn't enough. The media got across that Jokowi was something new, something different, something thoughtful, and a slim 6.3% majority decided to give him a chance. After the lackluster second term of President Yudhoyono, it was time to try something new. A thoughtful politician who was in no way connected to the Suharto era was not a member of Indonesia's long-ruling elite and had once earned a living as a furniture maker before he became a politician. Widodo has got away with an often poor campaign this time. Next time he won't be so lucky. Numerous problems remain. Now Widodo has to worry about appointing and organising a government and a cabinet. When he originally put together a coalition to back his nomination, it only had the support of a minority of 207 members of parliament. He will now need to create a wider coalition if he is to get his programme approved. No doubt various parties and factions will want to opportunistically join him. Choosing the right allies will require skill. But most of those 207 original supporters came from the PDIP party, led by former President Megawati Sukarno Putri, the daughter of the first president, Sukarno. Megawati wanted to run again this year, but after her party's poor showing in the parliamentary election in April, she recognised she could not win. So she chose Widodo to lead her coalition, thinking he might win. Now that he has won, there could be a price to pay which Widodo may feel he cannot afford. Widodo does not have the clout that Yudhoyono enjoyed. His position will be strengthened if his vice president, Kala, succeeds in securing the support of the Golka party for the new ruling coalition. Such a move would further diminish the coalition still supporting Prabowo, whose moves after the Constitutional Court rules in his case could well be a problem for Widodo. He will now have to demonstrate again what he achieved earlier in Solo and Jakarta to illustrate that democracy in Indonesia works far better than authoritarianism. One advantage Widodo now enjoys is that assuming the Constitutional Court does not rule against him, he now has two and a half months in which to carefully prepare for his inauguration on October the 20th as the second directly elected leader of Indonesia. While the third direct Indonesian presidential election is approaching resolution, the third election for a president of Afghanistan is still a cliffhanger. Currently in two hot, non-air-conditioned warehouses in Kabul, Afghan officials and campaign workers, together with members of the Afghan Election Commission, plus numerous American-European officials and diplomats, are all hard at work conducting an audit of the most recent presidential voting and trying at the same time to unravel the current electoral impasse. To reprise what has happened so far in what could possibly be the first democratic transfer of power in Afghanistan's long history, 
On April the 5th, eight remaining candidates out of the 27 who originally came forward last year contested the first round of voting for the presidency. A record 6.6 million voters took part in the election. Former Foreign Minister Abdullah Abdullah emerged on top with 45% of the vote. Former Finance Minister Ashraf Ghani Admazai was runner-up with 31.6%. Since no candidate won 50%, these two candidates were required to contest a runoff election on June the 14th. Interest in the runoff was high and the Election Commission recorded that 7.9 million voters recorded their choice. Votes for Abdullah Abdullah increased from 2.9 million to 3.5 million, while Ashraf Ghani's vote more than doubled from 2 to 4.5 million. So Abdullah Abdullah's share of the vote declined from 45 to 43.6%, while Ashraf Ghani's increased from 31.6 to a potentially winning 56.4%. Then all the trouble started. Abdullah Abdullah, who withdrew from a runoff election against President Hamid Karzai in 2009, alleging massive fraud, has refused to accept these preliminary results for basically the same reason. He claims that massive ballot stuffing implicitly supported by the Election Commission officials was the cause of Ashraf Ghani's increased vote. Ashraf Ghani's team has explained its increased vote in terms of better organisation and an increased turnout by his fellow ethnic Pashtuns. Abdullah Abdullah is part Pashtun and part Tajik, but his electoral strength comes from the Tajik community. The claims and counterclaims raise the spectre in foreign embassies of the war in Afghanistan drawing to a conclusion amidst a communal bloodbath. Tensions attained a heightened degree of intensity after Abdullah announced that he would declare himself the winner and set up a separate government. Two weekends ago, this brought U.S. Secretary of State John F. Kerry winging his way to Kabul to see if he could extract political compromise from all the emotional intransigence. After 12 hours of intense negotiations, plus shuttle diplomacy within the U.S. Embassy, Kerry appeared at a press conference with Abdullah Abdullah and Ashraf Ghani to announce the agreement to audit all the votes in the runoff election, an arduous task which continues to this day in those hot Kabul warehouses. Every single ballot that was cast will be audited, Kerry asserted. But what Kerry said next generated hope. Quote, this is unquestionably a tense and difficult moment, but I am pleased that the two candidates who stand here with me today and President Karzai have stepped up and shown a significant commitment to compromise, unquote. What that commitment to compromise entails remains a secret, but the indications are that a government of national unity constitutional change and the establishment of a prime ministership alongside the presidency may all have something to do with it. 
Kerry may have correctly seen that a presidential election in the Afghan context fatally aroused a highly negative all-or-nothing-at-all political outlook among the contestants. You've been listening to Reflections from Asia with Harvey Stockwin. The programme is produced by Phil Whelan. And now Damien Lewis continues reading A Delicate Truth by John le Carre. We present episode five. The sensational arrival of Kit and Susanna Probin in the remote North Cornish village of St Piran did not at first receive the ecstatic welcome that it merited. The Jippos were back. A camper van had been sighted by young John Treglowen as he drove his cows to milking. They were up there, bold as brass, on Manor Parkland. It wasn't until the camper appeared at Old Ben's garage and a tall, cheery fellow in a 